All right. Well, throughout this uh, semester and last semester, we've been studying church history. Today, we're going to be studying what is called the Enlightenment, which is going to be a little bit different because this is going to be more of a cultural movement that we're studying, and we'll see how it uh, influences and affects the church, but it's going to be a little bit different than some of our other lessons because it won't just be church-specific. Sometimes what we do is we study the Bible. Yes and amen. Other times, though, what we do is we take the Bible and use that to study the culture around us. If you have ever wondered, why did everything get so weird so quickly? Have you wondered that? It was like two years ago, nothing is like it is today. How did it get so weird? The, the, the reason that it became so weird is due to an influence in intellectual history known as postmodernism. We're going to have an entire lecture on postmodernism later on in the semester. But to understand postmodernism, you actually have to understand what postmodernism is reacting against against which it is reacting, if you're an English teacher. Uh, and that is modernism. That is the Enlightenment. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So, I'm super excited about this. You may or may not be, but here I am. Remember, you're more scared of me than I am of you. So, <laughs> definition. Let's start with the Enlightenment. What is the Enlightenment? The European intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, emphasizing reason, science, and individualism, rather than tradition and revelation, which is what most of Christian history would have appealed to, as the primary sources of truth and as the catalyst to human flourishing. Okay, I'm going to read that again. The European intellectual movement of the 17th, that's the 1600s, and the 18th centuries, that's the 1700s, emphasizing reason, science, and individualism rather than tradition and revelation, as the primary sources of truth and as the catalyst, what's needed to start, human flourishing. This epic of history is also known as the modern era or the age of reason. That's what we're going to be looking at today. It's very fascinating. We're going to mention a lot of figures you may have, might have heard of. If you think back to history class when you were in like the fourth grade, you hear of Isaac Newton and like an apple falling on his head. Why is that significant? We're going to talk about all that stuff today. Now, why is it called the Enlightenment? You hear the word light in there? What is it lighting up? And the answer is Christianity. The reason that, that it's called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages is because there was this idea that human flourishing and intellectual flourishing happened in the Greek era when you had Socrates and you had Plato and you had Aristotle and you had Solon and Homer and Aeschylus and all these guys. And then there was the Christian era where everything became dark and superstitious and stupid. But then you got the modern era, the Enlightenment, okay? So to call it the Dark Ages is a pejorative term. Christians don't see it as the Dark Ages. There's a lot of intellectual flourishing there, but secular people do see it as the Dark Ages. So this is called the Enlightenment. After having hundreds of years of the Pope and religion and clerics and Aristotelian scholasticism and universities, finally, we're getting to what we consider today science, we're getting to philosophical movements that don't need God. They can just appeal directly to human reason. That is what the Enlightenment is going to be. Now, before we get into some weird facts and people and stuff in the Enlightenment, let's talk about what led to the Enlightenment. So we're going to do a little history, a little technical stuff up front, and then it will get more fun. A few things that led to the Enlightenment. First of all, the Renaissance of the 14th through the 17th centuries led to a rise of the liberal arts called humanism. Humanism, by the way, don't think of what that means today. It doesn't mean like an atheist who's all about just humanity. That's not what humanism is. Humanism is a reference to the liberal arts. Fine arts are things like music, sculpting, painting. Liberal arts are academic subjects, such as philosophy and Latin and history and theology as part of the liberal arts. And so don't, don't think that humanism means atheism. It was a rebirth, what the French word renaissance means, of classical learning. The renaissance focused on studying the classics of ancient Greece and Rome, 
going back to the original sources of classical learning with this phrase in uh, ad fontes, which means to the source or to the fountain, literally. You'll see the reformers use that phrase as well, going back to the Bible in Greek and a proliferation of the arts. So the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see that there's this desire and it's all the rage to read Latin works, to read Greek works, to care about art, to care about intellectual learning and flourishing. That's going to be the first thing, the Renaissance. Next, the Reformation led to the Enlightenment, okay? The Reformation had weakened the stranglehold of the Roman Catholic Church on society, but here's the tricky part. But the radical strictness of Protestant orthodoxy was seen as too legalistic and depressing. People wanted to move away from the Catholic Church, but not toward the confines of Protestant morality. So no longer did you have to be Roman Catholic, you could now be Protestant. But that also meant that you still had to be told what you should do and believe. But that's not what people are wanting, so they're stuck in this weird in-between area where they don't want to be under the Catholic Church, but they don't want to be under a Protestant Church either. The third thing that led to the Enlightenment, Europeans were tired of all the wars and fighting between Protestants and Catholics. From their perspective, Christianity had led to nothing but authoritarian warfare. And this is true. Uh, right during the time of the Reformation and right after that, there, were a lo- there was a lot of fighting between Catholics and Protestants. Literally, years and years and years of wars of Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics. And so if you're somebody who's not a, a believer, you look at that and you say, Christianity is an abject failure. This religion that preaches peace and loving your enemies and turning the other cheek has led to nothing but warfare. Maybe something is broken with this system. It's kind of the same irony you see today with Israel and the Middle East, the place that should be the most peaceful place on earth, where you have the development of all these monotheist religions as one of the most violent places in the world. And then lastly, new innovations in science and philosophy. There's going to be some huge worldview changes that go on at this time that we're going to look at in just a second. Now, to give you a map to orient yourself into what we're talking about today, I've put together a helpful chart here, which is going to contrast the pre-modern era. What is the pre-modern era? What is that? Before the Enlightenment. Excellent. What is the modern era? The Enlightenment, we just learned that. And then what is called the postmodern era, which is where we live today. And I want you to see the big differences between these three systems of thought, these three worldviews, and it will help make sense of some of what's going on today. Let me give you a few. Truth in the pre-modern era was seen to be revealed by God. The most important things that mankind could know, God had to reveal to us. They were objective, and they had to be revealed by God. So truth came through revelation. In the modern era, truth is still objective. These guys are not wishy-washy, what's good for you is good for you kind of people like we have today. They believe in objective truth, but they don't think that it comes through revelation. God reveals it to man. They think that it comes through reason. Man discovers it on our own. And then in the postmodern era, truth not only is not objective, it is only an attempt to gain power. This is why today, if you try to use logic, this is why today if you try to give people truth, they don't care about that. They will call you an oppressor because when you have truth, what you're doing is you're creating an in-group, those who have the truth, and an out-group, those who don't have the truth. And when you do that, you have a class of oppressor and oppressed. That's exactly what you see going on today. Why? Last year, did certain political lobby groups say the phrase, math is racist? Because if truth is objective, which math is, you're creating an in-group, those that have the truth, and an outgroup, those that don't have the truth, and one can oppress the other. That's postmodernism. The approach for the pre-modern era was supernatural. God, angels, miracles, these kind of things. The approach in the modern era is rational. 
And the approach in the postmodern era is non-rational. The primary authority in the pre-modern era was church slash tradition. The primary authority in the modern era was human reason. And in the postmodern era, it is none. There is no highest authority that you can appeal to. Okay? The highest uh, humanity. How is humanity viewed in these three different eras? Humanity in the pre-modern era was corporate. You saw yourself as a Christian. You saw yourself as uh, a Brit or a German, or somebody belonging to your nation, you saw yourself as belonging to a larger group. Maybe it was a social class, you were nobility, or you were a peasant, but you saw yourself as a corporate body of humanity. In the modern era, humanity is seen as an individual. We'll see this in a second when we talk about the American Revolution. And in the postmodern era, humanity is undefinable. Why would somebody say that they are non-binary? Or why would somebody say that they're gender fluid? Or why would they say that? Because for them, there is no standard definition of what a human is supposed to be. Okay? That's modern and pre-modern thinking. We live in a postmodern, a post-fact society. The highest subject of study. If you were to go to university, what would be the highest thing that you could study? In the pre-modern era, it was theology. In the modern era, it was science, and you could throw philosophy in there probably as well. In the postmodern era, it is politics and sociology. Why? Because those study power structures. Politics studies who has power over people. Sociology studies what do we value within a culture that's going on, and how does that change, and what are the causes of that? So that becomes the highest view of uh, the highest subject that you can study. And then the highest value in the pre-modern era was God. The highest value in the modern era is humanity, and the highest value in the postmodern era is self. Not humanity like what's best for everyone, where you'll lay down your rights for the good of others, but rather what's best for you, whether it hurts other people or not. You with me? Is that a helpful chart? Okay, good. Okay, now let's talk about some major players, some, some, some key figures, and how they contributed to the worldview of the modern era. First, I have concluded a long note here so that you don't feel like I'm a dummy. So here's the note. The following thinkers are some of the greatest geniuses in world history. I cannot go into everything they taught, discovered, and believed. So I will only focus on how their views played into the larger worldview of the Enlightenment. This does not mean that they necessarily held to the conclusions that I will point out, only that this is how their influence affected others who would come after them. Though they contributed greatly to the Enlightenment, I do not have to, time to explain the philosophy of Benedict Spinoza, Gottfried Leibniz, George Berkeley, or Thomas Hobbes. Okay, so with that little uh, caveat in mind, what is going on in the Enlightenment? Who are these major figures that are shaping this new worldview? Because again, if you lived in the pre-modern era that we just talked about, it was church, corporate, uh, God, truth is objective, truth is revealed, and all of a sudden we're going to get, in a sense, a religion of reason. That's really what the Enlightenment's going to be. It's going to be a religion of reason. Where does that come from? Let's talk about a few guys. First of all, this guy with that sweet, you know, like uh, 80s hairband hair, Isaac Newton, you know this guy. He was like sitting under a tree, an apple fell on his head, and he's like, apples fall to the ground, and that was real profound or something. So listen, let me tell you why Isaac Newton's a big deal. His work in optics, light, physics, and especially gravity was revolutionary in terms of discovering, listen to this next phrase, the natural mechanics of the world. Though Newton was a theist, his ideas would be used by later thinkers to say that we do not need God to understand the world because we can simply learn the mechanical laws of physics to know why things happen. Here is why Newton is a big deal. If you had lived before Newton, and I asked you, why does a stone fall to the ground? What answer would you have given? Do you know? You would have given Aristotle's answer of a substance. The substance of a stone, it's part of its nature to not float. The substance of fire is to go up. 
The substance of air is to go up, but the substance of a stone is to go to the ground. So why does it go to the ground? Because there's something internal to the stone, its essence, which it wants to go to the ground. When you plant an acorn into the ground, its substance wants to turn into this big tree. That's just what's inherent within that substance. That would have been the answer given you in a university because of the influence of Aristotle. Here's what Newton is saying. We don't need that substance stuff. The world is causal mechanism. The world is a big machine. And so, though he's a theist, he's not saying you can take God out of the equation, but that's kind of where his view is going to lead. We don't need to know that God moves things. We don't need to know what a substance is to make it move. Rather, laws of mechanical physics are what causes things to do what they do. Okay? That's what's revolutionary. Notice, you don't need God for that system, although he had God for that system. You don't need God for that system. It just works. If you could understand the laws of physics, you understand everything there is to know about science with this Newtonian worldview. Now, Newton was a genius. Let me give you a few facts about him. He discovered the three laws of physics. Calculus, which by the way, Leibniz discovered calculus independently of Newton, and they fought their whole life over who had actually discovered it. I actually think Leibniz did first. But Newton discovered the three laws of physics, calculus, and gravity while in his early 20s. What did you do in your early 20s? Huh? Play Fortnite or something? Here's what he's doing. Discovering calculus, right? Isaac Barrow, who held the highest chair of mathematics at Cambridge, upon reading Newton's works, immediately resigned and gave his teaching position to Newton. Okay? He reads it and he's like, you can have my job. I don't deserve to be here because Newton is so brilliant. Napoleon once asked his court astronomer if there would ever be another Newton. The astronomer replied, no, sire, for there would have to be another universe to discover. Think about how all-encompassing Newton's theory is. If you understand physics and physical science, you understand the universe. And then the famous English poet, Alexander Pope, famously said of Newton, nature and nature's laws lay hid by night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. That's how revolutionary this guy is. It's like we were seeing in the darkness all this time until we had a figure like Newton. Next, Francis Bacon. He was the guy that invented that delicious breakfast thing that you eat. And people had just eaten ham up until that point. I'm kidding. Uh, Francis Bacon. The, the modern era, there's a debate on whether or not Rene Descartes or Francis Bacon started it. There's a good case to be made to say Bacon started it. Here's why Bacon is important. He thought that the medieval university education was too scholastic and Aristotelian, meaning it relied on old philosophy, and that it didn't actually help humans flourish. He sought to emphasize empiricism, that's finding uh, knowledge through the senses and these kind of things, through experience, rather, and the scientific method, and is a major contributor to the new method of doing research. This contributed to the focus on scientific method to find truth apart from revealed religion. So the great instauration, the new Atlantis, the novum organ, oh, what is it? Organ, the, what is it? The new organon. Novum? I can't remember. I, I, I forget things. I can't remember. He has another work. I can't remember the Latin phrase of it, though. But it's uh, this new organon. It's this idea of the way that we will approach research will leave revelation out of it, will leave Aristotelian philosophy out of it, and uh, novum organum. That's what it is. There you go. Uh, uh, that it will leave all that out of that. And we don't need God for this system. We need to start over and have a purely empirical, experience-based, purely scientific way of approaching the world. That will be Francis Bacon. His work, The New Atlantis, if you ever want to read it, it's like this Christianized island that these discoverers explore, but then there's this turn and this focus on science. Rene Descartes, okay, not uh, Descartes. Rene Descartes is going to be the father of modern rationalism. What is rationalism? Okay, <clears throat> empiricism 
is that you learn things a posteriori, a posteriori, meaning that you learn them after experience. You learn them secondarily. You learn things through experience. That's empiricism. The rationalist is going to say that you have innate ideas, that the primary way that we know things is not through experience, it's through reason. For example, let me ask you this question. Are there things you know without any experience at all? Yes or no? Like what? You, you know that through experience, though. You or someone else have had to stick a, 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 you know, a, a fork into an electrical socket, and it shocks you, and then you learn you shouldn't do that. But if you or someone else has not done that, you don't know that inherently. The baby is not born knowing I shouldn't stick the fork in the electrical socket. I promise you that. Babies are born thinking the opposite. This will be awesome, right? What else? Can anybody name something that we know without experience? What is it? You only know that post-experience. You breathe and you know, oh, I need to keep doing this. You think you have a mind, why? Because you're thinking about your mind, that'd be an experience. Yeah, okay, so empiricism would say that you know things through experience and experience alone. The rationalist says, yeah, you learn things through experience, but the primary, there are things that you already know innately that you didn't learn through experience. For example, the law of non-contradiction, that something can't both be true and false at the same time. You don't learn that through experience. As soon as I tell you that rule, even if you've never thought about it, you see that it's inherently true. Or, and here's the example that Descartes uses, which I think is really good. He uses this as a defense for the existence of God. He says this, in our minds, we have a concept of infinity. But here's what's crazy. We've never experienced anything infinite. We've never experienced anything infinite. How did that thought get into our mind unless it was already placed there by God? Because when you say, well, Zach, I know we don't experience things that are infinite, but I do this. I count one stick, and then I count another stick, and then I count a third stick, and then I just go dot, dot, dot. Here's what Descartes would say. What does dot, dot, dot mean? You're already assuming infinity. As soon as you say, I count these sticks and I keep going, where did you get that and I keep going? You're already assuming infinity. So what Descartes going to say is the only way that you have a concept of infinity is because God exists and he has placed that in your mind. He has wired you to know that. That's something that you know apart from experience. So he's going to be the father of rationalism. We, we might talk about rationalism at another point. It's really interesting. His philosophy, listen to this, attempted to begin with what cannot be doubted by human reason and use that as a building block to construct an entire worldview that could be intellectually certain. This contributed to the idea that mankind should begin with human reason in finding truth and also that mankind had to be certain of what we know, thus de-emphasizing faith. Descartes is not an atheist again. He's a theist. A lot of these guys are theists because they know you can't have something come from nothing. They know that without a start, you would never get to today. If the universe is eternal, we would have never gotten to today. So they believe in some form of God, but usually they're going to redefine God. Here's what Descartes is doing. Descartes is saying, let's take radical skepticism to the furthest point that we can. So Descartes says this. He does this thought experiment. Let's pretend that everything that I think I know can be doubted. I could be in a dream right now. I could have a scientist sticking probes in my brain in a vat, and I'm in the matrix, and it feels like I'm here, and I'm not. Everything that I think I know, I'm going to doubt. And then to stack the deck against me even more, I'm going to pretend like God is evil, and he's actively trying to deceive me at every point. That's a lot of skepticism. Not only is everything that could be false that I believe, I'm going to assume that it is. But now I'm going to assume that there's an evil genius or an evil demon or an all-powerful God who's evil that is actively deceiving me at every point. With the deck stacked against me, is there anything I can know with certainty? And here's what Descartes says. Yes, 
that I'm thinking. That's why he comes up with this famous cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Even if God is deceiving me, there must be somebody to be deceived. Even if I'm thinking wrong thoughts, there's still thinking going on. And so he uses that as this foundation for all knowledge, and he builds a system on top of that. Okay? Now, it's brilliant. Descartes' one of the, when you talk about the, the top five greatest philosophers of all time, it's Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, and uh, Hegel. He's up there in the top five. He's a genius. But here's what this system leads to practically. You ready? One, a turn to human reason to know things. How do I know that I exist? Because God has made me, and the Bible says that I do this, and I should submit to him. I know it through revelation. But with Descartes, I know it through human reason. Additionally, look how high his standard for knowledge is. Unless you know it with certainty, you don't know it. Well, there's a lot of things I know, not with certainty. I mean, I had breakfast this morning. I could be wrong. Again, I could be in a dream. I could be in the matrix and it tastes delicious, but I'm really just this gross baby in this alien vat. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that doesn't mean I am. I most likely really did have breakfast. And I most likely can know that. Next, John Locke. He emphasized that our mind is a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and that our knowledge is derived from experience, i.e. empiricism. So he is the opposite of Descartes on this. He does not think you have innate ideas. He thinks you learn everything through experience. This further contributed to looking for truth by sense perception. That's what science is. Science is saying, what can I learn through experience? What can I learn through the five senses? Okay? Now, the phrase, we should only believe what we can take on through the senses, is itself not derived from the senses. So the rationalists might be right. But... What uh, guys like Locke are going to do is they're going to promote this idea that we learn through experience, and it's going to emphasize science. You see, in these, all these guys, there's the emphasis on you, reason, science, mechanics, natural law, not revelation and revealed religion. John Locke, again, though, is a Protestant. He, uh, he was actually discipled by John Owen, uh, the famous Puritan scholar there at Oxford. This further contributed to looking for, for truth by sense perception. Locke's, Locke's not a great philosopher. He's okay. His political philosophy, though, was a major catalyst to the American Revolution. We'll talk about that in a second. His letter concerning toleration and his two treatises of government are some of the greatest political works you can read, and they're what America is founded on. America is Locke, okay? If you want to know what America was meant to be and how the, the framers of the Constitution understood that worldview, it's directly from John Locke. David Hume. David Hume is one of my favorite philosophers to study, but he is the devil, Okay? He is, uh, he is a congenial atheist, so he's not one of those mean ones. He's a nice one that likes to tell jokes and have fun. He's a, a, he's a strong skeptic, and his philosophy is going to bankrupt all knowledge. Okay, let me talk to you about this guy for a second. He showed that it was ultimately passion and not reason that led humans to make decisions. By the way, that's absolutely true. I don't know if you've ever, ever read anything online. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody just emote really hard, right? That's what they're doing. The, the, the reason follows passion, okay, for Hume. He, he's, I think, assesses that correctly. He thinks it should be that way. We don't think it should be that way, but he, th he at least claims that it, it is, and I think he's right. Hume's philosophy contributed to skepticism because he showed that we could have no scientific knowledge at all. He was a congenial atheist whose rejection of God and miracles is well known. Let's say something about Hume. <sighs> for Hume, all of knowledge falls into one of two categories. This is called Hume's fork. One is relations of ideas, okay? These are things like mathematics, the fact that a square, the angles of a square add up to equal 360 degrees, or the fact that all bachelors are unmarried. If I said, prove to me all bachelors are unmarried, do you have to go do experiments for that? Do you have to like get a big a grant from a university and go up to a bachelor and say, are you a bachelor? Yes. Are you unmarried? Of course I'm unmarried. That's what a bachelor means. 
No, you don't have to do that. You already know that innately. There are these logical, deductive truths that you can know. Yes, he, he believes those exist. But that's not most of our knowledge. Most of our knowledge is not math. The fact that my name is Zach or that you're in a building right now or that it's Sunday, none of that is innate knowledge. None of that is, uh, or rather, relations of ideas. He wouldn't hold to innate knowledge. Uh, relations of ideas. All of our other knowledge is through what are called matters of fact. Let me give you an example. Everything that we know when it comes to science or almost anything else is known through causation. The cause of me was my parents. The cause of them was their parents. The cause of me getting here today was eating breakfast, which I think I ate, and then got in my car and drove here. The cause of you hearing this is my voice goes into these speakers, and you can hear everything that we know is based on causation. Everybody with me on that? Okay, that's true. <clears throat> However, and here's where Hume gets dangerous, we never experience the causation. That's not something we learn through our senses. So when you see a billiard ball hit another billiard ball, you think that one is causing the other to move, which is true. But you never experience that cause. You just see a ball move, and then you see a ball move. You don't experience the cause. You say, well, what do you mean, Zach? When one ball hits another, it has to move. Here's his point. You never experience the has to. If God showed up to Adam in the garden and God pulled up a big billiard table and he said, Adam, I'm about to hit this pool ball. What's it going to do to the other ball? Adam would have no idea. Maybe the balls explode. Maybe one pops into the air. He has no idea because causation like that is not something that's innate. What we do is we just link. Because something comes after something in time, we assume that it was caused by that thing. But Hume's going to say you never experienced the cause. You just assume it. Do you think the sun will rise tomorrow? Yes or no? Yes. Why? Because it has in the past. That gives you no evidence that it's going to rise tomorrow. Right? That's like saying, what if you died tomorrow? Well, I don't think so because I hadn't died in the past. You don't know that. On the day of your death, all the past days you've lived are irrelevant when it comes to knowing that. So to give you another example, let's say a little kid goes up to the refrigerator door and they open the door. And right when they open the door, there's a mailman there and he rings the doorbell. And the kid's like, that's weird. So he closes the refrigerator and he opens it a second time. And at this point, the mailman's getting annoyed and he rings the doorbell the second time. That kid is going to assume that him opening the refrigerator door caused the doorbell to ring. Did it? No. It's just something that happened after that. Hume says all of our knowledge is like that. All of it. We see one thing, we see another thing, we never experience the cause, so we know nothing. You see how dangerous Hume will be. By the way, there is not a response to Hume. If you don't, you either become human or he's answered by the next guy, a guy named Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant, who again is in the top five greatest geniuses in philosophy of all time, his answer to Hume's dilemma is this, that how we know causation is not something in the objects around us, it's something in us. That there's the object, what he calls the noumena, and then there's our perception of the object, what he calls the phenomena. And what our mind does, our mind is not passive. Our mind doesn't just receive information like you stamp an image on a ball of wax. Rather, our mind is active. Our mind reads time, space, causation, substance, these kind of things onto these events. Anyway, Kant's very hard to understand, so if you don't understand this, hang with me. We'll get to some other stuff in just a second, but let me read this. Kant showed that we don't just perceive bare facts as they are in themselves, the noumena, 
but rather contribute through our mind the facets of time, space, and certain philosophical categories. We thus can only get to our perception of the things outside us, the phenomena, and not the things themselves. Now let me tell you why this is important. This contributed to the idea that we are not passive receivers, but actively involved in constructing our view of the world around us. He also thought that all proofs for the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, and free will, free will were seeking to go beyond what could be known. Faith was a separate realm from reason for Kant. He has this famous phrase, I had to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. So again, faith, uh, Kant is a theist, not an orthodox Christian, but a theist. <clears throat> but what he's going to say is, things that you cannot perceive like that, that you can't read this transcendental activity of the mind on, you can't know. So he thinks you should believe in God. He thinks you should believe in morality. He thinks you should believe in the immortality of the soul. He thinks you should believe in free will. The problem is, is that you can't prove God's existence or the immortality of the soul or free will from philosophy, from logic. That's a different realm. So the, the two are completely separate. He puts up this uh, you know, wall that is uncrossable between faith and reason. Now, that was all kind of heady. That was maybe a little bit much for an early morning. So everybody just take a big breath. Oh, relax. Everything's fine. Who cares? It's the postmodern era. Do what you want to do. Who cares, right? Just relax. Now, if you haven't heard what I've said up until this point, I want you to pay attention to the next guy. The next guy, I think, is one of the worst people to ever be born. And he is a precursor to Karl Marx. We're going to talk about him. So pay attention to this next guy. His name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He is the most famous man to ever come out of Geneva, Switzerland. You might think it's Calvin, but he's only popular to, to reform Christians. Rousseau is a massive influence. Uh, he's a weird guy. He changed religions several times in his life. He started a love affair with his nanny, whom he called Mama. Yuck, right? He had five kids. Each kid, after they were born, he sent them to an orphanage. Okay? So this is a bad guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He is an anti-enlightenment thinker. The other thinkers of the enlightenment think that humanity is progressing. We need more rationalism, more science, more uh, institutions. Rousseau is the opposite of that. Okay, let me read you this and then I'll explain it. He was an anti-enlightenment thinker. He believed that mankind in a state of nature, meaning back in the woods when we're a bunch of Neanderthals, would be kind and peaceful. The development of civil society with all its institutions is what corrupts us. Society causes us not to be true to ourselves because we have to fake our behavior to fit in with what society accepts. This, actually, uh, this is actually what leads to ambition and harming one another. This contributed to a disillusionment with foundational institutions of society and was a distant precursor to postmodern thought. This also contributed to thinking that mankind was naturally good. He is Pelagian. And it is society around us which corrupts us. Let me give you the example. When we say that this criminal committed this crime, but it's not really their fault. It's not a character issue. It's not a sin issue. You know why they committed that crime? Because they didn't have a dad. They didn't have people to encourage them. They didn't have a good edu education. Think about what somebody is saying when they say that. They're saying the problem is not with this person. It's with what? Society. The problem is not with you. It's with society. And so what Rousseau is going to do is he's going to turn the enlightenment on its head. Rousseau is going to become the father of anti-institution. What you're seeing in postmodern thought today is anti-institution. Anything that's an institution. By the way, institutions are good. Society cannot function without institutions. Institutions are things like the church, government, a shared history, the constitution, the nuclear family. These are institutions. 
But for Rousseau, those are what corrupt people. Back when we're just living in the woods before society, people are sharing their berries. They're hunting together. Things are peaceful. When you start developing institution, now people have to, they have to be ambitious. They have to try to rise up. They have to fake who they really are. And that is what causes all the problems. Do you see how relevant Rousseau is for today? That is his view. Mankind was good, and the problem is not us and our sin. The problem is society. And the more uh, intelligent, the more powerful these institutions become, the worse it is. Why do you see people tear down statues? Why do you see people burn churches? Why do you see people explicitly trying to dismember the nuclear family or marriage being between one biological man and one biological woman? It all goes back to Rousseau, okay? If you've ever done the thought experiment where you thought, man, if I could go back in history and stop one figure from doing something, you might think of Hitler or Stalin. You might want to add Rousseau to that list as well. As Rousseau would say, one is born free and everywhere is in chains. Now, I've put this next part in red because it's a reference to Marxism. What's going on with Marx is not new. In fact, Karl Marx explicitly references Rousseau and says that he has gained a lot of information from Rousseau. Rousseau is really the first Marxist in that sense. Plato was actually a Marxist, if you want to say, use a, you know, kind of this, uh, uh, you know, if you want to misdate him, use an anachronism or whatever. But Rousseau is a precursor to Karl Marx because he believed one's true self was what the general will or community believed. So one's personal liberties should be overruled if they are not in accordance with the popular opinion. Let me explain this. Let me ask this question. <clears throat> is a rich junkie free? Let, let's say, let's say you're a movie star, you're a multimillionaire, but you're also addicted to cocaine, okay? Are you free or not? Yes or no? You say no. Why? Why do you say no? Because you're addicted, but didn't you choose to be addicted? Didn't you choose to take cocaine to begin with, knowing that it was addictive? Okay, so you, you, are, are, you are free then? We're free, but no longer. So you're not continuing to choose to do cocaine, but you're doing it anyway. Here's the point of asking that example. When you say the rich junkie is not free, here's what you're saying. The true him is not free. Forget what he wants to do by his action. Forget the fact that he's paying money for cocaine and he keeps doing cocaine and he did cocaine to start with. That, that's not the real him. The real him wants to be free from cocaine, but he can't. Notice that you're creating two different types of the real him. Is the real him what he decides in his liberty? Or is the real him the, the person that wants to get away from the cocaine? So what you're saying is you're saying that there's a real him that goes beyond what he's explicitly telling you he wants to do. Rousseau says that's the case in society. The real us is not what we say we want to do. It's what the society around us should free us up to do. I'll give you a great example. If you own a cake shop and someone comes in and they say, I want you to bake a wedding cake for this gay wedding. And you say, I don't want to do that. What Rousseau would say is, that's not the real you saying that. You're only saying that because you grew up in a society with Christianity you grew up in a society with uh, people primarily being heterosexual. And so the real you wants to make the cake. You just don't know that yet because you've been corrupted. So society should force you to be true to yourself, which is what society wants you to do. Do you see how demonic this is? This is the root of Marxism. It is everything that you're seeing going on today. 
okay? You will often see a clash in politics between individual liberty and what is said to be best in the society. And you know what that clash is? That's a clash between Locke and Rousseau. When people are locked down because of COVID, what they're saying is what's most important is not your individual liberty. What's most important is the communal good. You don't know that. You've been corrupted by all this Americanism into thinking that your freedom matters, but it doesn't. What you ultimately want to do is to protect this old person so you must stay home under threat of arrest. That's fun. Next, Voltaire, Francois-Marie Arouet, a philosopher, writer, and critic of all forms of authority that he considered to stand in the way of reason. This contributed to the criticism of Christianity for not according itself with the dictates of enlightenment ideals. Voltaire is a brilliant writer, brilliant literary figure. He makes fun of Rousseau, saying things like, uh, when you read Rousseau, it makes one want to walk on all fours, but now, you know, having walked upright for 60 years, I find myself hard to go back, things like that. Uh, But he's mainly mocking the Catholic Church. Anything that stands in the way of reason. He's not a philosopher. He's a literary figure, but he is a brilliant writer. Okay, let's talk about how some of this influences Christianity with the movements known as deism and Unitarianism. Deism held that many Christian doctrines, including miracles, are false. And that though God caused the world to exist, he no longer interacts with it. The example often given is that God is like a giant clockmaker who winds up the universe and then just lets it run according to natural laws. A lot of the founding fathers were Christians, that's true. Some of them were atheists. Many of them were what are called deists, like Benjamin Franklin. A deist says there has to be some God to start everything, but he doesn't interact with the world. Forget all the miracles, incarnation, cross stuff. That's silly. What God does is he winds up the universe like a giant clock, and then he just lets it go according to natural law. Okay, that's deism. So it's a type of rational religion that's not based on the Bible. Uh, Deism held to the existence of one God, so it is uh, monotheistic. The duty of man to worship that God. The primacy of morality and religion. Religion is primarily not about doctrine. It's not about proposition. It's about how you act. It's about morality. The reality that mankind has done wrong and the fact that all people will give an account for their actions. So what you see is you see this moralistic, not really believing that God interacts today, view of God. So people are generally good. They know they'll give an account for their sins, but it's not Christian. That happens at this time. Unitarianism was another movement that started at this time, founded by a guy named John Biddle. It denied the Trinity and claimed that only the Father was God. That's why it's called Unitarianism. Not Trinitarianism like we would hold, but Unitarianism. Unitarianism emerged at Harvard in 1805 and corrupted what are called Congregationalist churches in the U.S. Uh, By the way, today, most Unitarian churches have joined up with another group called the Universalists who think everybody's saved. So you've got this heretical group that denies the Trinity, and they team up with the Universalists that say that everybody's saved. It's called UU, Unitarian Universalists. You might have seen some of these churches. I don't know what they do in those church services. You come together and you're like, everybody's good. And you go home. I don't know, I don't know what they do. But that's where you see that primarily today, the Unitarian Universalist movement. Both of these movements are linked to what is called natural religion. Natural religion, religion is an attempt to create religion from just reason and natural scientific exploration without all the doctrines and dictates of revealed religion. You see this in 1794 when Thomas Paine critiqued organized religion in his work, The Age of Reason. Thomas Jefferson, the famous Thomas Jefferson, cut out all the miracles in the New Testament so he could simply see the ethical teachings of Jesus. It was published and called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth in 1820. Okay? So, notice what he's doing. He's saying, I want this teaching of Jesus stuff. He's a great guy, but I don't want all this deity, hell, you know, dying on a cross, miracle stuff. That's nonsense. Now, Let's talk about a fascinating thing in world history, and I'll tell you why it's directly linked to uh, what we're talking about today. The French Revolution is what happens when you carry the Enlightenment ideals to their logical end. 
Okay, so in 1776, you have what? America, right? You have the American Revolution, which is based on Enlightenment ideals. And then in 1789, you have the French Revolution, which is also based on Enlightenment ideals. Here's the big difference. Why did the American Revolution succeed? And why did the French Revolution not only not succeed, but also led to people getting guillotined by the thousands? Because the American Revolution followed Locke. What does Locke hold as most important? Individual freedom. The French Revolution is going to follow Rousseau, and we're going to see what that leads to. Let's look at a few things here. The French Revolution was from 1787 to 1799. Causes include a growing disdain for the wealthy class, what was called the bourgeoisie, if you're wondering where Marx gets that term, by the poorer classes. The lack of food for many peasants, a loaf of bread at this time could cost up to a week's wages. New theories of the rights for all people, also seen in the American Revolution. By the way, remember, before the Enlightenment, monarchs are the ones that rule. The idea that people get to vote in their leaders is an Enlightenment ideal. It's not all bad. A hatred for the French monarchy, which the people saw as no longer ordained by God and others. All right, so what happened? On July 14th, 1789, peasants stormed the famous Bastille prison, which was a symbol of royal tyranny. The peasants tore down the entire brick castle by hand. They found only seven prisoners. The famous playboy, Marquis de Sade, had already been moved. So you've got this growing disdain for the monarchy. There's poverty, there's famine, and the people say, we have had enough. We're going to overthrow the government, and it starts with the storming of the Bastille. The Bastille was this uh, castle prison where you would lock political prisoners. So by tearing it down, it's like trying to tear down the White House or something. It's, it's a way of making a political statement. By September the 24th, 1792, the new regime, what's called the National Convention, abolished the monarchy and declared France a republic. The guillotine was the most popular way of executing people who disagreed with the new regime. It was called the following names. The National Razor, the Widow, the Patriotic Shortener, that one's great, the Regretful Climb, and the Silence Mill. Okay, There you have a picture of uh, the guillotine being used. By the way, they also did experiments where they would ask prisoners, if you are still conscious after your head gets cut off, blink a few times so we know. So they'd cut off their head and be like, mink, 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 and they're like, ah! They're still alive for a few seconds. So if you've ever wondered how long a human can go with its head cut off like a chicken, it's at least a few seconds. Okay. King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, which, by the way, never said let them eat cake. That's apocryphal. Supposedly, she was told that the people are starving. They don't even have bread. And she says, well, then let them eat cake. Ha, ha. Nom, 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 That never really happened. Okay. They were both guillotined in 1793. Now, what's funny is that they tried to escape but they knew what Louis XVI looked like because his face was on the coins. So he's trying to sneak out, and people are like, I've seen that guy. That's the king, right? So they catch him. And uh, Marie Antoinette never said, let them eat cake. Supposedly, her last words were, pardon me, monsieur, after accidentally stepping on the executioner's toe. Famous last words. There you go. The new regime promoted taxing the rich. Huh. Free education for all. Hmm. National assistance for the poor, etc. They opposed anyone who stood in the way of their policies from, 1717, from September 1793 to July 1794. The infamous Reign of Terror, led by Maximilian Robespierre, was underway. 300,000 people were arrested, 17,000 people were executed, many by guillotine, and the National Army swarmed to over 1 million soldiers. The high estimate of how many people were executed during the French Revolution is 40,000. Between 1,800 and 4,600 people were drowned. In France, people could still be legally executed by guillotine until 1981. That's awesome. Okay. Robespierre's group during the Reign of Terror was called the Committee on Public Safety. Always be afraid 
when evil is done under the guise of safety. The devil appears as an angel of light. He doesn't usually just attack directly. He uses other values to push against more important values. Keep that in mind. Here's the quote by John Jacques Rousseau. Whoever refuses to obey the general will will be forced to do so by the entire body. This means that he will be, quote, forced to be free. Okay? You see that there. The entire project was a failure, and France was taken over by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1799, just 10 years after the revolution began. When he was crowned king, he took the crown out of the hands of the bishop and crowned himself king. Typically, if you're going to be crowned at your coronation, you would take a knee, and a bishop would put a crown on your head. Why? Because they're saying, God has given you this office. But what Bonaparte does is he takes the crown out of the bishop's hand, and he puts it on his own head. Very enlightenment, okay? God doesn't make me king. I make myself king. The French Revolution exemplified many of the anti-Christian facets of the Enlightenment. For example, they made their calendars more logical. They had a 10-hour day with 100 minutes per hour and 100 seconds per minute. They had 10 days a week as a repudiation of the seven-day week outlined in the Bible. They erected a statue to the goddess of reason in the public square. So notice religion doesn't change. We just worship something else. So they put up a figure of the goddess of reason in the public square to say, we're religious, we just worship reason. They printed pornography to be used as political satire and pamphlets that they handed out to the people. Well, Zach, how did they do that without, you know, uh, photographs? Well, they used drawings. That's how pornography was done before photographs and then the internet. It was done through drawings. Robespierre replaced Christianity with what he called the cult of the supreme being and named himself its leader. Crosses were removed from cemeteries, and in some places the title placed over the cemetery simply said, Death is an eternal sleep. Many people celebrated the famed sexual libertine, Marquis de Sade. If you've ever heard of the term sadism, I'm not going to describe it for you. If you've ever heard of that term, that comes from this guy, de Sade. Sade and sadism, because supposedly he liked to torture his victims. He wrote a pornographic novel called The 120 Days of Sodom. Okay? He is known for just pushing immorality to its limits. If there is no God, if we are reasoning creatures, we can do what we want. So he's known for his sexual exploits. At one point, he had to be moved from a prison because he was seducing so many of the inmates. In order to know virtue, he said, we must first acquaint ourselves with vice. That's Marquis de Sade. Well, let's talk about the Enlightenment's influence on the church, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. A few things. First of all, during this time, the church greatly lost its power and influence. Greatly. Okay? The uh, Reformation caused the Roman Catholic Church to lose some power, but not Christianity. In fact, it bolstered Christianity because you saw this flourishing in Protestantism. But during the Enlightenment, you see the church greatly lose its power and influence. <clears throat> A lot of unchristian and even anti-Christian philosophy was developed at this time. <laughs> However, some helpful Christian philosophy was also promoted during this era. I just gave you uh, Descartes' proof for God uh, that we know of something that's infinite, though we haven't experienced it. There's another guy named George Berkeley. It's, it's spelled Berkeley, and Berkeley, California is actually named after this guy, but that's not how it's pronounced. It's pronounced Berkeley. His philosophy was exceptionally Christian. Jonathan Edwards would go on to develop a view similar to Berkeley's. Berkeley would say this, you don't know anything that you haven't experienced, okay? So if you say, so, so you ever heard this question? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? You ever heard that? That's related to Barclay. Now, what we want to say is this. We want to say, of course it makes a sound. And I say, how do you know that? And you say, because when I've been around a falling tree, it does. And I say, that's not the example. We're talking about when no one's around it. Well, I think it still does, but why do you think that? 
Everything you know, you've experienced. So you can't say there are all these things happening that nobody experiences unless it's God who's thinking those things. Unless God sees the tree fall when no one else does. And that's his view. His view, in a sense, is that because everything is experienced, how do we know that when we leave a room, the table doesn't disappear in that room? Well, because God is perceiving everything all the time. He has a very theocentric view of the world. In a sense, everything is a thought in the mind of God. God perceives everything, and when we perceive something, our thoughts are lining up with God's thoughts. Gottfried Leibniz's philosophy was exceptionally Christian as well. He would say, so here's the question again. I know this is too much, but it's just so much fun. I just, I just want to stretch your brain where you're like, what is happening? Then I know I've done my job. There's a question going on at this time of how two different substances can interact if they're completely different. We all know our good friend, Casper the Friendly Ghost, he walks through walls. Why? Because he's a different substance than the wall. He's not physical. How do these different substances interact if, if nothing, nothing about them is alike? And Leibniz's answer is that God pre-programs into every single substance, what he calls a monad. God pre-programs everything that it's going to do before creation. So when two things interact, they're not really interacting. They just look like they're interacting because God has caused them already to be pre-programmed to interact the way that they do. Political liberties were given to all people. That became an important value. Okay, so there's some good things because of the Enlightenment. Toleration for Christians with other views was finally allowed. Before the Enlightenment, Christians are fighting each other, even groups that are very, very similar. Even the Lutherans and the Reformed who are similar are fighting each other over these little things. You start to get more tolerance between Christians with other Christian groups during the Enlightenment. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We have this greater thing to fight, the Enlightenment. So different Christian groups are more tolerant towards one another. And from that point on, science would become the highest field of study instead of theology. What gets to determine everything today? Science. But it's not even science. It's actually a philosophical worldview that's hiding behind the science, what's called scientism. But we don't have time to talk about that today. Let's pray, and then we'll answer some questions. Almighty God, we thank you for preserving your church. Even through something as strange as the Enlightenment, even through something as strange as postmodernism, we confess that you have a pre-modern view. That you believe that mankind should understand things through revelation. Not that we shouldn't use reason, it's just not the highest thing. Our reason can err, but your word cannot. And so we thank you that you love your church, that you've never let the gates of Hades overcome her. We pray that you would continue loving your church, even in the weird times we live. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.